Uh, we're going to continue this morning our study in the book of Romans. Uh, Scott Holly last week, you had two clips from the Super Bowl. So I got to scratching my head and thinking, how on earth could I possibly top that? I actually had a clip from the playoff game and then, and then from the Super Bowl. So I went to the obvious selection, which we'll put on the screen now. The only way really to top a Super Bowl is to spend some time talking about Donald Trump. Um, Donald helped me out this week because the, the, the topic of the sermon is arrogance. Uh, and, and how deadly arrogance can be. Now, Donald Trump's an incredible person. He is, uh, he's built empires, and, uh, and he's been able to look at a lot of people and say, you're fired. And they actually are fired. You know, I look at people and say, you're fired, and they kind of laugh and go, yeah, whatever. Um, so he has accomplished quite a bit, but I think he thinks a bit more of himself than he probably should. On Monday, uh, he came out with his announcement about who he was going to support uh, in the upcoming 2012 presidential election. I just got to read this quote for you. Because uh, it, it makes the point for me. He, uh, Donald Trump says this, I like Newt a lot, but I think Mitt Romney is going to win the election against Obama, Trump observed. I really believe that. I think Obama will not do well and won't uh, do as well as people are thinking he's going to do. And I think Mitt Romney is going to win the election. Okay, great, whatever. That's your opinion. But here's the kicker. But there was a lot of confusion as to who I was going to endorse. And frankly, that made things quite exciting. So... There you have it. You were worried about who to vote for for president. Donald Trump has told you. Now you know, and you can be on your, on your merry way. Um, you know, that kind of arrogance just, you know, just kind of sticks with you a little bit. It, it doesn't feel right. It, it, it just seems a, a bit off to everybody when you hear those kinds of statements. And what I'm really glad about this morning is that Christians are never arrogant. Uh, we do not have any pride among disciples of Jesus, right? I mean, that is not an issue in, in my life. Certainly, I'm, I'm sure it's not an issue in your life uh, at all. But apparently, according to the Apostle Paul, there, there were some people, uh, not us, of course, but there were some people who called themselves Jesus, uh, called themselves disciples of Jesus, who struggled with pride, with arrogance. And so uh, we're too good for that kind of sin. But to give Paul his fair due and to take a, a few minutes to look at, at the Word of God, we're going to consider what you know, people that do struggle with spiritual arrogance might, uh, might be able to take away from this passage. I hope you know that my tongue is firmly embedded in my cheek for the last couple minutes of I, as I've shared the idea that we don't have this issue or that I don't have this issue. Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 24. I hear the Word of God as He speaks directly to you and to me this morning. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, uh, excuse me, grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note that the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, 
and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we uh, ask for your spirit and your word to speak to us this morning. Father, I'd like to say that, that we come humbly and we, we come with thankful hearts and that uh, my attitude is, is perfectly right in this area, but Lord, that would, would not be true and you know everything. You know my heart. You know all of our hearts this morning. You know the thoughts that go through our minds. Uh, you know the pride that resides there. And so, Father, I, this is a word for us. And I pray that you would uh, allow us to hear it. Father, you give these words of admonition in, in love. Because you care for us and you want us to, to grow in our faith. You want us to be strengthened uh, from the ground up in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would do that this morning through your word. Lord, I am so unfit to, to preach on this. Uh, I need to be preaching standing in front of a mirror and, and looking at my own self. But Father, your word is true. And so it's not important who delivers, it is important that it is your word that is spoken. And so, I, Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way. I pray that you would forgive my sin, that you would keep me from being a hindrance to anyone to hear your truth this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, could it possibly be, let's just hypothetically speaking, could it be that we... Uh, what we hate in others, the pride that really kind of just grates at us in others, is something that we tolerate quite easily in ourselves. I would suggest that, that Paul's admonition uh, in this passage would uh, answer that question in the affirmative. That spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance is an issue within the Christian community. Now, if, if we just go back and do a, a bit of a, uh, of a review of what the theme of Romans is all about and you come in each week that you're here, and you see the blue screen, and you see that phrase. Every time we jump into Romans, you see the phrase, the righteousness of God. And I know we've reviewed it before, but I'm going to review it one more time, and I'll probably review it a couple more times before the end of June, just to make sure that we all understand what, what that term means and how it applies to this passage, and to, quite frankly, to every passage in Romans. The righteousness of God is a combination of two perfect parts of his character. It's a perfect combination of his justice and his mercy coming together at the cross of Jesus Christ. As Paul said in Romans chapters 1 through 3, we are sinners. We are broken people. We are in rebellion against God, and we can't fix that on our own. We have no desire to fix it. We don't want to make it right, and we justly stand before God condemned. God is right to say to us, you are sinful. You are rebellious. That is an accurate statement. And God's justice will not allow sin to go unpunished. The price must be paid. And yet God is also perfectly merciful. He does not desire that anyone should perish. And so he provides through the perfect life of Jesus, then sacrificed on the cross for our sinfulness. He's our substitute. And Jesus offers his perfection for our imperfection so that God's mercy can have its fullest expression in your life and in my life through faith because Jesus has paid that penalty for us. That is the righteousness of God. 
And it is that theme that permeates this discussion and this question. Because if it is by God's grace, if it is by God's doing, then how could we possibly get off track? Where is there room for spiritual arrogance? Well, it, it was clear in the, in the first century church in Rome that it was made up primarily of Gentile Christians. Very, very quick history lesson. Early on in Paul's life, many of the Jews were expelled from the city of Rome. Uh, the emperor made an edict, and he, and he tried to remove the entire Jewish population from the city of Rome. During Paul's ministry, that edict was reversed, and Jews were welcomed back into Rome. Many of them had become Christians, and now they're coming back to a church that kind of looks at them and go, you know, you don't look a whole lot like us. You're a little different than us. Things have changed since you've been gone. Uh, and they've changed for the better. And there's a bit of spiritual snobbery within that congregation. And so Paul's going to address that head on under the context of the righteousness of God, of this, of this justice and mercy coming together. And I would suggest that in the 21st century church, Green Tree Community Church, that that can be an issue as well. I think it would be a, a gross error on our part to skip past this and say, oh, we're the most humble, uh, you know, God-honoring, Jesus-looking-like church on the planet. And there's no spiritual arrogance anywhere around here. I think that would be a mistake on our part. And so what we're going to do, the way we're going to look at the passage is simply two ways. Paul reminds the Roman Christians, and he reminds us this morning, of God's plan to save and how that all comes together. And then he directs them to a proper response. So I think if we follow the passage pretty simply, we will, under those two headings, we'll be able to glean the message that the Holy Spirit intends for us this morning. So let's jump into that, to that first question, God's plan to save and the olive tree metaphor. Uh, Paul starts off and he, and he says um, that some of the branches were broken off so that you're a wild olive shoot, but you can be grafted in and that you can share in this nourishing root. So Paul talks about the, the Roman Christians in the passive voice. He's talking about what's happened to them. Someone has done something to them. Someone has done something with them. And he's talking about God as the farmer. Now, this idea of the vine and the branches and an olive tree goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, God in the Old Testament is seen by, by, mentioned by several of the prophets as the vine dresser, as the one who takes care of his, his garden in Israel, as his garden, and he's wanting to produce fruit. Uh, the New Testament, you go to John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about, uh, I'm the vine and my father is the, is the gardener and you're the branches. So this is not a new metaphor in Scripture. It might be new to us this morning, but it is a very familiar one in Scripture. And God is depicted as the farmer. And he's grafting and he's pruning and he has a goal of producing fruit. Verse 17, some branches were broken off. And you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in verse 23. And even they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in. So the, the first part of the metaphor is God as a farmer, and, he, and he's grafting, and he's pruning, and he's working for the idea of, of, of producing fruit. About eight years ago, uh, a buddy of mine who lived next door, worked for a nursery, brought home a couple of trees, and he said, we, these were, somebody brought them back, we can't use them, would you like them? One of them was an apple tree, and so we planted it in our yard, and, and it grew and grew and grew for several years, and every year I'd look at it, and I'd wait for the apples. And, uh, and every year, three or four apples would show up. And I'd kind of pound myself on the chest and get my two or three apples and try to get my kids to eat them. And they're like, they didn't come from a store. We can't eat them. And I'm like, okay, never mind. We won't even go into that. But uh, one day, Cindy said to me, why don't you prune that apple tree so, we, so you can get more apples? 
And so I took out my, my clips and I read a little bit on how to do it. And I pruned a little branch here and a little branch there. And she'd come out and she'd look and she goes, you're not pruning enough. Prune more. And I'd, okay, I guess I should prune a little more. And I'd prune a little bit more. And, and she'd come back out and you go, you don't, you're not getting it. And then she, you know, she kind of went, cut this one. She stood there with me, you know, kind of like the child, okay? Here, help, let me help you, you know, husband. Cut this one, cut this one, cut this one. And pretty soon... You know, there, there's this, this bark that, that just looks like, you know, the trunk that looks like it's been butchered and a few branches at the top. And the next year, we had hundreds of apples because the farmer had figured out that pruning was necessary to produce fruit. And so now I'm pruning everything. I'm like, hey, there aren't, you know, there aren't enough roses on that rose bush. We're, we're taking it down. You know, hey, the neighbor's dog could grow more if, it, if, you, if you pruned it up and grabbed the neighbor. Hey, if we lob one of our kids' ears off, they might get smarter. I mean, I'm just, I'm looking for ways to prune anything I can get my hands on. And, and the whole idea is that we'll get more. We'll produce more. And God, in this metaphor, is the farmer. But then Paul says there, there's also an olive tree. There, there are branches. And if God is the farmer, the branches are the people that are being saved by the work of God that is happening in their lives. They don't take credit for it. It's happening to them through God's mercy. And so in verse 17, Paul reminds them, you were grafted in. Now you share in the nourishing root. And in verse 20, he reminds them, you stand through faith. So the branches of the tree are God's people that are saved by the grace of God. And then there's one other piece to the metaphor. We have the farmer, we have the branches, but we also have the root of the tree. The root of the tree is God's intention, God's sovereignty, God's lordship over his plan of salvation that he, that he introduced to Abraham through the nation uh, that he was going to create through Abraham, through the nation of Israel. And it was going to come to completion through the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says there's a root to this tree. You're not the sustenance of your own life. It comes from the ground up. It comes through this salvation that God is working in and among people who receive Jesus Christ through faith. Remember, it's not you that support the root. The root would do absolutely fine without you. But without the root, you're as good as dead. It's the root that supports you. And so Paul paints this, this picture, and olive trees are very well known in the, in the Middle East. Uh, this, was, this was something they could get their minds around as easily as if I started talking about the St. Louis Cardinals this morning. If I started talking about beer in St. Louis, I don't know if I can say beer in church, but I'm going to. Everybody knows something about that in St. Louis because of our long history with Anheuser-Busch, and we could talk baseball all day long. Olive trees to, to Paul's readers, they got it. It clicked with them. They understood. What's the application? The application is that somewhere along the way, grace was lost. Somewhere along the way, spiritual pride and arrogance took root in people's hearts and minds and souls. And so Paul has to remind them that they've, they've developed within their hearts a lack of respect for God. So in verse 20, he says, do not become proud. You, you, you haven't accomplished anything. God has accomplished this. And in verse 22, he reminds them that this arrogance has led to a, to a disconnect from mercy. They've, they've stopped being people of kindness. And he has to remind them that, that God's kindness has been given to you. So where is there room for boasting? Where is there room for bragging? 
Quick, quick pop quiz here since I brought up baseball this morning. Uh, what, does, uh, what does Roy ha- Halliday, not Holiday, what does Roy Halliday have to brag about today? Anybody know? He did something in baseball. He's the most recent person to have done it. I'm giving you a lot of hints. I shouldn't have to give this many hints in St. Louis. Pitched a perfect game in May of 2010. Now, that's something you can brag about. If you go out and do that, you should brag. But a Christian bragging about their salvation is like a triple bypass patient bragging after the surgery of how successful it was. When the only thing he or she brought to the table was a broken heart. The only bragging they could do would be to say, you know what, I'm I'm so smart, I ate at McDonald's three times a week all of my life. And now I'm on the operating table. It makes no sense for you and I as disciples of Jesus to brag about our contribution because our contribution is a bad heart. Our contribution is a sinful nature. And pride, spiritual pride, as Paul says, reveals that we have a lack of respect for God. And we have a disconnect and a disinterest in his mission of mercy and of kindness. So how do we respond to this admonition? Paul, Paul is not real happy with the Roman Christians in chapter 11. He's heard of this, this division within the church in Rome where the Gentiles are looking down at the Jewish Christians and, and, and treating them like second-class citizens. And so Paul very rightly calls them on the carpet. And he's calling you and I on the carpet this morning too because this is applicable to every one of us. There is some root of pride in every person's life in this room from the guy talking to everybody listening. How do we respond to this loving admonition that the Holy Spirit gives through Paul? Well, the first thing that Paul calls us to is fear. He says, do not become proud but fear. Now, he's not talking about a fear and trembling that's, that's like, you know, you're, you know, you go to a scary movie and you know the guy's going to jump out, you know, with the axe and he's going he's to get you. And, and, and even though you're ready for it, you still jump. You know, it's not a, a fear like when I, you know, I wait in the dark hallway of my home when Katie came home at Christmas. Cause you just got to scare Katie. I mean, it's just, it's like a sport at our house. It's just so much fun because she actually runs in place and, 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 and yells all at the same time, but doesn't get anywhere. Um, it's really uh, fun to watch, but it's not that kind of fear. It's a fear that is a healthy respect for one in authority. I was thinking about this when I, when I read this. How many times my father spanked me when I was a kid? And the answer to that question is probably once or twice because all dad pretty much had to do was kind of do this, and, and it was all over. Uh, I, I was with the woods this week. Tommy's uh, mother, May, passed away, and we were at the funeral home on Monday night, and, and we were sitting around and talking about uh, our memories of growing up on, on Nurk Avenue. And uh, Mike Wood was sitting immediately to my left, and, and I was talking about, we were talking about fond memories. We were talking about the wonderful chocolate chip cookies that, that Ms. Wood would bake. And, and if you spent the night, you know, you got bacon and eggs the next morning, just how much fun that was. But we also talked about her, her willingness to discipline anybody who happened to be there. All of us. Didn't, didn't have to be related. Back in those days, didn't, didn't have to be related. And so I said something about, you know, I can remember times when I'd be standing, you know, kind of by the back door, and, and Ms. Wood be coming out of the back door, and she'd have a fly swatter in her hand, or, and I didn't even finish my or, and Mike sitting right next to me goes, or wooden spoon, and I went, yeah, wooden spoon, and you know, the, the, it, was a, it was a fun conversation, but it was a, it was a respectful conversation. It's like, you didn't mess with Ms. Wood. If you got out of line, she was going to correct you. And my dad didn't have to, you know, do much more than kind of look over his glasses at me. Friends, 
there is a holy and healthy fear of God. It's not fear that he's going to change his mind and not save us after he said he would. But it's understanding that the one whom we call Father is the almighty God of the universe that has been the center of unbroken praise from eternity past to eternity future. And we treat him flippantly at risk of our own spiritual souls. And we must understand Paul's admonition here is not to cower in the corner and not engage with our Heavenly Father, but to give him the respect and the glory and the worship that he deserves and let that fear lead us to a thankfulness and a longing to join in his ministry of kindness, which is the next response. Paul says, but it's God's kindness to you provided that you continue in kindness. Paul says, if you're, if you're connected, if you're this branch that's connected to this root, then some of the nourishment that's flowing up from this root into your branches ought to produce a fruit of kindness. And if you go back to Galatians and you read the fruits of the Spirit, kindness is right there in there. And Paul says, Christians ought to be kind people. Disciples of Jesus ought to be the first ones to come and help. They ought to be the ones with the most patience. They ought to be the ones that that are the most understanding, that are the slowest to anger and the quickest to care for others. I was driving down the street a week ago Friday with, with a friend of mine who's a member of Green Tree Community Church, who I've known for years, and he's helping, he's doing me a favor. He's helping me move a couch from a friend's house over to the office until it goes to Jordan's apartment at college next fall. We're driving down Adams, and we're right by Kirkwood Road Baptist Church at whatever, that's not Taylor, that's Woodlawn, I think, and two cars in front of us just stop. The, the car just stops. And like, there's somebody talking on their cell phone. I can't believe this. And the car in front of me starts honking at them. And I'm like, well, why not? I'm, I, we got to get going. So I start honking. And pretty soon the car in front of me backs up and goes around. And I see the person's got their hazard lights on. And I look, and it's a woman sitting there by herself. And she's, you can just tell she's agitated. So I, excuse me, I pull up behind her. I get out of the car. And, uh, and she rolls down her window. I'm like, you know, what's going on? She goes, I just got my starter fixed. But it, it obviously they didn't fix it. And I'm like, well, you know, do you want, would you like to, you know, for me to drive, which you, know, that's just, you shouldn't say that in this day and age. But, uh, you know, I'm like, how can I help you? And so we finally figured out how she could get started, kind of put her foot on the brake and the gas at the same time, and she only lived a few blocks away. So she gets down to the next stop sign, and, and her car conks out again, and we're still behind her, and so I get out again. And, and, and she finally gets it started, and she's like, I, I'm just a block over there. I, I'm, I'm good, and she leaves. I get back in the car, and my buddy looks at me. He goes, I'm glad that time wreck showed up because the other one didn't look very good. So I'm here preaching about kindness this morning. And I can't even, you know, my initial reaction with a person whose car stalls is to get angry. So what do we do with that? Where, where's the connection to the, to the root? Paul says, if you're connected to Jesus, kindness is going to flow out of your life. And so there's a bit of repentance that needed to take place in my heart at that very moment. And I was quite thankful I had a friend who was willing to actually say the honest things to me. The third response is to understand the absurdity of God's grace. Now, by this, I don't mean God has lost his mind. <laughs> so let's be careful here. I'm not, I'm not saying that something has gone terribly wrong. What I mean by this is in verse 24, Paul says, uh, the wild olive tree, that's you guys who are Gentiles, have been grafted in contrary to nature. This isn't how it normally goes. You're actually cultivated, you're grafted into a cultivated olive tree. 
what Paul is referring to is the fact that, that there was plenty of grafting that went on in, in olive trees in Paul's day. Over 300 years before Christ showed up on the, on the planet, uh, Theophratus wrote, and he was kind of a guy that studied horticulture, and he wrote about how you can take a bearing olive branch and graft it into a wild one. So you take the, 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 the cultured branch and you put it into the wild olive tree and you end up with a cultivated tree. And Paul's saying exactly the opposite. You're taking a wild branch and you're putting it in a cultivated tree. Nobody ever did that. And that's what Paul's saying. This is how God saves. Nobody else would think of this. Nobody else would would come up with a plan where God has a a natural tree, but he looks around and he so loves the rest of the world that he's going to invite the wild branches that have absolutely no chance of bearing fruit on their own, and he's going to bring them into his plan of salvation. Our salvation is so unnatural and so of God, there is no room for pride on our part. And all of this leads to hope. Because what it says is that God isn't done yet. And he finishes in verse 24. I didn't put it on the screen, but he finishes. says, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in? He says, God's not done with Israel. You don't need to worry about God's plan for the Jewish people. He's going to bring them to salvation through Christ. Your responsibility, Gentile Christians, is to fear God with an appropriate fear and allow the, the, the connection of the root to develop kindness in your life because you understand how crazy it is that God would love you in the first place. And how much and how far, how much he's done and how far he's gone to bring the gospel and life into your heart. So how do we apply? How do we build a life of discipleship that actually rejects spiritual pride? Well, I want to offer three things. The first one is, it maybe sounds oversimple. Uh, Somebody said to me a week or so ago, you're kind of a one-dimensional preacher. You keep going back to the gospel. You keep going back to the gospel. You need to kind of move past that. You need, to, you need to get into more applicable things in life. And I said, well, I'll tell you, as soon as I get the gospel on the cross and as soon as my congregation gets the gospel on the cross, we'll move on. Let me tell you when that's going to be. It's going to be when your eyes are closed and you open your eyes and you don't see me stand there, you see Jesus. That's when we're done with the cross. Because if we don't get the gospel, if we don't understand that it is the power of God that saves us and not ourselves, we are run the risk of being irrelevant and cut off. And so I want to bring us back for just a moment this morning to a couple of paragraphs that Max Lucado wrote. Max Lucado is one of the most gifted writers I have ever read when it comes to prose and putting things together in a creative manner. And I want to remind us through Lucado's words about the cross. It says, On the eve of the cross, Jesus made his decision. He would rather go to hell for you than go to heaven without you. And going to the cross was the cost of his decision. Man by himself could not, cannot deal with his own guilt. He must have help from the outside. In order to forgive himself, he must have forgiveness from the one he has offended. Yet man is unworthy to ask God for forgiveness. That then is the whole reason for the cross. The cross did what sacrificed lambs could not do. It erased our sins for eternity. The cross did what man could not do. It guaranteed us the right to talk with, love, and even live with God. You can't do that by yourself. No matter how many worship services you attend or good deeds you do, your goodness is insufficient. You cannot be good enough to deserve forgiveness. No one bats a thousand. No one bowls 300. No one, not you, not me, not anyone. 
That's why we have guilt in the world. It's why we need a Savior. It's why there was a cross. You can't forgive me for my sins, nor can I forgive you for yours. Two kids in a mud puddle can't clean each other. They need someone clean, someone spotless. We need someone clean too. That's why we need a Savior. That's why there was a cross. Friends, it would be a tremendous use of my time and your time every morning of our lives and every day before we lay our head on the pillow and probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 times in between if we simply, even for a moment, go back and reflect on the cross and the grace in which we stand. Second application, I believe, is to pray for a humble and caring and compassionate heart of Jesus. That this, this nourishment that flows through the root would actually transform our lives. We're, we're going to, in about three minutes, be participating in the Lord's Supper. And we, and we come to the Lord's table, not just as a remembrance, but because we believe that Jesus is spiritually uh, present in these elements, not physically present. It doesn't actually turn into his flesh and his blood, but that he is spiritually present. And by participating in communion, which is the ultimate act of, of humility, saying, I can't save myself. It's agreeing with Lucado. It's being in lockstep with the gospel message is saying, I need a savior. That's what we do when we celebrate communion. That's why we say, if you're not a Christian, don't feel like you're under any religious duty to come up here and take communion because you're not doing yourself any good. You're, 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 you're believing a lie. And each one of us need to examine our own hearts. But as we partake in communion, as those who have put their faith in Christ, I'm not saying you, haven't, you have to you know, be led a perfect life last week to come to communion because then nobody would. But we come seeking again the forgiveness of God. And as we participate in communion, our souls are nourished. And part of that nourishment is the kindness of Christ is passed into our hearts, the humility of Christ, the caring spirit of Jesus, the compassionate heart of Jesus is passed on to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we reflect on the cross, we need also to pray that that, that life, that attitude, that heart would be created within us. And thirdly, live with intention of sharing Jesus with somebody every day. It doesn't always have to be a spoken word. Maybe sometimes it would be better if it wasn't a spoken word. Maybe sometimes just an act of kindness would be exactly what, what the Lord had ordered. But, but pray for discernment and pray that God would bring somebody across your path every day. And then I would pray, God, today just let me talk to one person. Just let me demonstrate in some way the way I, the way I react to something. You know, the way I don't honk my horn at somebody whose car is stalled out. Anything, Lord, just give me a chance to show you to somebody else. It only comes when spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance are rooted out of my heart and my soul and are replaced with the nourishment that comes from being attached to the root of God through Christ Jesus. Let's pray together.